Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. What a wonderful time of worship that we have had today. We want to get into the Word of God. And so I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, I'll read the first three verses here in just a little bit. But I wonder if it's ever happened to you what has happened to me quite often when there's something in your life that you have stress about or maybe you have some anxiety about something and then, you know, they, it, it somehow translates into some weird dream that you have. I mean, you might even want to call it a nightmare. You know, I often, I have to admit, I often have, well, I always have weird dreams. I mean, all my dreams are, are weird. But, you know, the greatest, there's, there's these great fears that pastors and preachers have. And they sometimes translate into weird dreams and weird nightmares. And so probably the most reoccurring dream or nightmare that I have is showing up on a Sunday morning, walking up to the pulpit, and having no sermon ready to preach. Now, you're lucky today because I do have one, but in my nightmares, I don't. And it scares me. <laughs> I mean, in my dreams, I stand behind the pulpit just panicking. What in the world am I going to say? Like, you know, in dreams, dreams don't have logic to them. I mean, it's not like I could think in my dream, well, just preach the word, you dummy. But, you know, in, in your dreams, you don't think like that, right? And so, now there's also variations to that dream where, okay, I forget my Bible, I forget my sermon notes, and I forget different, different things. But I guess you could say that the theme, kind of the common theme of all these recurring dreams and nightmares that I have, is that I am not prepared. So that might be the biggest fear of a pastor, not being prepared to preach, not being prepared to fulfill what I was called to do. Now, we're not given a spirit of fear, so I don't want to call us to fear, but we ought to have a concern or to use a phrase that I used last week, we ought to have an anguish over the fact that the modern church is not prepared for God to move in power and in revival. God desires to bring power and revival and a movement amongst his people, a power to proclaim the gospel, a power to save lost souls, a power to make an eternal impact on the world. But if we're truthful, the modern church is not prepared. The modern church is not ready for God to work through us in that way. Now, sure, we like to talk a big game. We like to say the right things. We know the right things to say, right? Sunday school answers, Jesus, church, Bible. Well, the right things to say is, oh, yeah, I want revival. Yeah, I want things to change. Yeah, I want God to move with power. The problem is we're not willing to make the changes in ourselves that are needed for God to move in power amongst his people. God will not move in power amongst the people who are not prepared. In an article that he wrote, author Chuck Lawless listed several reasons why the church is not prepared for God to move in power. So he lists these things. He writes this, number one, we're not really desperate for God. Sure, we may use the kind of desperation terminology, but the words don't always reflect our heart. It's been some time since I've seen a congregation that pleads for God's presence. 
Number two, we tend to speak about the sin of others rather than deal with our own sin. We preach strongly against sins that we sometimes tolerate under our own roof. Few people are so broken over personal sin that they can only cry out to God for revival. Number three, we find happiness in our stuff. I mean, sure, we know it's all fleeting, but we treat it as if it isn't. The more stuff we have, the quote-unquote happier we feel, and the less we need God. And we often have much more stuff than the people around the world do. Number four, we know little of the Word of God and often less about church history. We don't know enough about the stories of God's miraculous intervention and powerful displays to long to see that same kind of church revival. Our general lack of knowledge equates to a corresponding lack of burden. Number five, we have too few persevering, patient, persistent prayer warriors. That was a tongue twister. Our praying is usually reactionary. That is, we only pray when we must. Not many of us lie on our faces pleading with God to fall on us with his power and bring, church, bring to the church revival. Number six, we can grow churches without the power of God. That growth may not be the result of non-believers gloriously transformed by the grace of God, but it still results in increased numbers, and that's all we care about. And churches that show any record of growth seldom begin praying for church revival. Number seven, we're probably not ready to pay the cost of revival. When God falls on us in his power, the result must be brokenness that leads to repentance from sin and weeping over lostness. It means calling the church to holiness and dealing appropriately with members who choose to live in rebellion. Revival often wounds first before it heals. And I'm simply not convinced the North American church is ready for that. And so we read this article, and we hear these reasons why God will not move and why we are not ready. And it ought to cause an anguish within us. Because we're not. We are not prepared for God to move among us. I mean, while I was reading that article and reading those points, reading that list, if you were not convicted and you were not moved and you were not grieved of the state of the church and the state of yourself and, and me, that means you're not ready. That we are not prepared. And we want to be prepared. The encroaching darkness that is out there in the world needs a church that has the power of God working through it to do great and mighty things. You cannot continue doing the same things and expecting different results. To put it in kind of a silly, colloquial way, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you got. And I don't know about you, I want something different. I don't want to keep getting what I got. I want to see God work in our midst. In the passage we're looking at today in Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah led the Israelites to a time of deep repentance so as to prepare them for God's moving in an empowering way amongst them. What I want us to take away from the Word of God today is that if the church desires to experience God move with power in the midst of His people, we must be spiritually prepared. 
And so let's prepare ourselves. I want to read just the first three verses of Nehemiah chapter 9. If you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read these three verses. This is what is recorded in Nehemiah. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and, in, and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, take your word and plant it to us, and Lord, may it give us a desire to prepare ourselves so that we are ready and we're available for you to work in mighty power to work in this world so that Jesus is made known. We ask it in his holy name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. So before I get into some of my points, I want to give some context to what's going on in, in this passage here so you understand where we're at in, in, in the redemption story. And so the, the Israelites, the Jews, were taken captive by the Babylonians. They were taken into captivity like God said they would. would what would happen if they went, were disobedient? And so they were in captivity to Babylon for quite some time, but then the Medo-Persian Empire took over, and they allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. But Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed. And so Nehemiah, who was the king's cupbearer, who was a Jew, he, he, he heard about what was going on in Jerusalem and it caused him a great anguish. He, he, he had anguish. He wanted to see things rebuilt. And so there were some Jews in Jerusalem already, and Nehemiah led another group to Jerusalem so that they could start rebuilding the city and rebuilding the walls. And so, sure, they, they rebuilt the walls, but just because there were some physical, earthly aspects that were rebuilt, Nehemiah also realized, though, that the spiritual lives of the Jews were in ruins, and the spiritual lives of the Jews needed to be rebuilt. If God was to move in power spiritually amongst the people, they would need to do some work on themselves, just like they were doing work on the wall, so that they would be prepared. And we have to consider where we're at spiritually in our day and age, so that we can be prepared, so that we can make a difference to the glory of God for all of eternity. So how, though, can God's church prepare themselves for a movement of God in their midst? And just three quick points. Number one, we clothe ourselves with a spirit of mourning and humility. We clothe ourselves with the spirit of mourning and humility. Nehemiah was working hard to prepare the people in the city for God. And soon after the walls were completed, it came time for a special festival of the Jews, one that had been written about in the Law of, law of Moses. It was called the Feast of Booths, and it's described in, in chapter 8. And so what the Feast of Booths was, it was a week-long celebration of what God did and, and how God provided during the, the exodus and, you know, the wilderness wanderings. It was a happy, joyous occasion. I mean, you know, it, what they were doing was probably more what we think of when we think of festivals and feasts. And, you know, it was, it, it was fun. It was a celebration. And there's always times for that. I mean, it is good and appropriate to rejoice in what God has done in our lives because he's done a whole lot. God has done a whole lot, and it's good to rejoice in that. It's good to celebrate those things. But, for lack of a better term, we can't party all the time. We can't always be lighthearted. 
If we want to see God at work, we also have to have a time of serious contemplation and conviction and reflection. There comes a time when you have to deal with the dark, heavy stuff that is in you and going on around you. And so two days after the end of the Feast of Booths, Nehemiah calls the people to a time of serious spiritual preparation. I mean, they spent a week. The Feast of Booths was about a week. They spent a, a week feasting and, and partying. They were celebrating what God had done. But now, it was a different time. Now it was a time to get ready, to be prepared. And the first thing that is mentioned is that he called the people to a time of fasting and sackcloth, which, you know, I, I liken to, I don't know, those, those potato, woolly potato bags or whatever, you know, that you might put on. Sackcloth, just very itchy, irritating stuff. Fasting sackcloth and then putting dirt or dust or ashes on your head. And, and so now that seems like a far cry from the revelry that happened the week before. But, you know, this, is the, this was what was called for now. We had our celebration. Now it's a time to get serious with God. And, and, and so there's a reason why he called for these specific things. Because fasting and sackcloth, and, you know, putting, you know, the ESV says put earth on your head. I mean, d dirt, whatever, on your head is because these were signs of deep mourning and deep repentance and deep humiliation. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, you see that like after a great disaster happened, they'll put sackcloth on and they'll fast and they'll mourn and put dirt on their head and things like that. It's mourning over what's going on. Other times when a threat of judgment comes, we see people doing those same things, putting on sackcloth, fasting, and putting dirt on their head. For example, you see this in the book of Jonah. After Jonah preached to Nineveh, the king of Nineveh, called the people to this repentance. Put on sackcloth, fast. Put dirt on your head and mourn because God is about to destroy us if we do not repent. And so by, do, by Nehemiah saying, okay, it's time to fast. It's time to put on sackcloth. It's time to put dirt on your head. He's saying it has come time to mourn over wickedness and evil and sin such that you know, we were taken into captivity, such that there were these disasters, such that there was this judgment upon us, and we are going to humble ourselves before God, acknowledging that we need to repent. Because not only did our ancestors do wrong, we're still in the wrong. And unless we mourn and humble ourselves and repent, we will not see God move in our midst. And the church is in the same boat. I see so many churches and pastors out there that put on a show and proclaim how great they are instead of proclaiming how great God is or, and, and or you know they revel in sin instead of mourning over sin. But we're not called to celebrate sin. We're called to mourn over sin. And by the mercies of God through Jesus Christ, He lifts us up from that. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. For they shall be comforted by Jesus Christ. And so we're called to this time, even in the New Testament, you know, people think, oh, that's the Old Testament. Old Testament is just so judgmental and dreary and things like that. Yeah, guess what? The New Testament says the same thing. 
Listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, said in his epistle. In James chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, he said, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, that's a sign of, of, of conversion to Christ. This mourning, this, this humbling, it's a wonderful sign of our conversion to Christ. You know, because, you know, look, if, if sin doesn't bother us, then the Spirit of Christ might not be within us. If the sin that's in our lives and the sin that's going on around us, and it, that it, it doesn't bother us in any way, shape, or form, maybe that means we don't have the Spirit. If you don't have the Spirit, that means you don't have Christ. Because you get the Spirit when you get Christ. If we can live with evil and wickedness and sin and not even bat an eye at it, we have not been made new. But if we have trusted in Jesus Christ and we have been born again, we're going to have a sense of sorrow over sin. Sin within ourselves. Yeah, you know, it's so easy to judge other people. Point the finger at other people. Yeah, I might do bad things, but look at this guy over here. Yeah, you know what? We, we mourn over the sin that they display because maybe their, their sin is displaying that they don't know God and they don't know Jesus Christ and they're headed to hell. So we mourn over that, but we also mourn over our own sin. The great American pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said that as a Christian, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. Dr. Donald Whitney of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, who, who wrote a great book about the spiritual gifts, he wrote, The fact that there is a struggle with sin and a sense of grief, grief because of sin is good. Unbelievers have no struggles or griefs. They can just sin however they want, right? But I think that we Christians in America think that, well, we ought not to have such feelings. We ought not to dwell on that for our mental health. We need to avoid such thinking. We don't want to think about sin. We definitely don't want to think about our sin. And we don't want to think about our wickedness because then it might make me feel bad. And you know I don't want to feel bad. For some reason, we think that we're so privileged we don't ever ought to feel bad. And so we fill our time and efforts with so much frivolous stuff to make sure that we don't deal with our own issues so we don't feel bad. But we're doing exactly what God warned through the prophet Isaiah would happen. This is what God said in Isaiah 22, verses 12 through 14. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning for baldness. That was another sign of repentance, by the way. So you don't have to shave your head. But that's why for baldness and wearing sackcloth, all signs of repentance. The Lord God of hosts called for that. But verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. So instead of mourning over the sad state that they were in, instead of humbling themselves, they partied. 
We try to live in a world of fantasy so that we don't deal with the reality of who we are, what's going on inside of us. And God will not work in the midst of people who will self-medicate themselves rather than mourn and humble themselves. And this leads to what Nehemiah did next with the people. So number two, separate ourselves from worldly entanglements. Our mourning and our humiliation, our humbleness, ought to lead to separating ourselves from worldly entanglements. In verse 2, it says that the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. And what happened is, you read this in the book of Ezra, you read this in the book of Nehemiah, that Israelite men took them for themselves foreign and pagan wives who led them away from worshiping the one true God. And instead, they worshiped the foreign gods and idols of their spouses. So the foreigners represented those things that turned people away from holiness, turned people away from loyalty to God, from a pure devotion to God, because the people would get entangled with all these things of the earth, and it stopped them from living for God. This is important to understand. In our day and age, and we are warned about this even in the New Testament. Again, well, that's an Old Testament thing. No, listen to what the New Testament says in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the, the writer of Hebrews understood that this world is under the dominion of, of the devil and it has so many distractions and it has so many entanglements. It weighs us down from putting our lives to work for God in living a God-pleasing life. I mean, yeah, there's things we got to do in life. you got to go to work. you got to go to school. You, you take care of the home. you got to take care of the family. Things like that, those are well and good. And there's other, but there's other things that will entangle us. I mean, those things we can allow entangle us more than they should. But there's other things of the world that will slow us down from living for Christ. Be it constant TV or constant video games or constantly on our phones or constantly reading other books or whatever. In and of themselves, they aren't bad or evil, but too much of it entangles us like a spider's web, and we're all caught up into it. And we're more concerned about the things of earth than we are the things of Christ and the gospel. And so like those foreign wives that the Israelites had to deal with, the world offers us so many delights to tickle the eyes and tickle the ears that you know, we turn the direction of our life away from Christ and we turn it to these other things. And our spiritual growth, our spiritual progress is, is hindered. And instead of living full steam for Christ, even though you know, we might claim that we are, we're not. These worldly things are, are dragging us back, holding us back from living for Christ. It reminded me of the thing that I thought about in, in my brain is, well, I don't know where else you would think, by the way, other than your brain, but I'm just, my mind works in weird ways. So it, it brought to mind this picture of Okay, have you ever seen those inflatable bungee runs? So it's like a, it's like a bouncy house, because it's inflatable, but it has two uh, like rows or two sections where people race each other. But the people who are racing each other are tied to these bungee cords so that while they're trying to run, you know, you run from one end of the inflatable to the other end of the inflatable, and whoever gets there first wins. But while you're trying to run, there's these bungee cords that you're attached to that keep pulling you back. And so you, you might get so close to the end and then all of a sudden you fly back because that bungee cord pulls you right back. No matter how hard you run, 
The bungee cord is a burden that's working against you. Well, guess what? That's the entanglements of the world. And if we are to be prepared to see God move, we've got to get them spiritual bungee cords off our backs. We have to separate from the things that are holding us back. And sometimes it's not only things or habits or sins, it's people. There's people that hold us back. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so there's all sorts of different entanglements that you need to get untangled from, separate from, to be ready for God to move in your midst. And the way that we can work at that is through confession and repentance. Because if you notice in verse 2, it says to separate from these foreigners, and after you separate from the foreigners, then they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So to get rid of the weights and burdens and sins, you confess your sins to God through Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God will remove those burdens. Now, confession means you is Another word for confession is agreement. You agree with God that those things are sins, they're weights, they're burdens, they are entanglements, and we don't sugarcoat things. We agree that they are what they are and that they make us ill-prepared for God to move amongst us. We do it as individuals, we do it as a group. Maybe some of the longtime Harvest Baptist Church folks here know things that happened decades ago that need to be confessed and and just repented of the you know people involved might not be here anymore but maybe there's something that happened in in our past but one way or another we need to confess to get that out of those entanglements of the world confess and repent and then finally and quickly uh number three we conform ourselves to the bible's worldview we conform ourselves to the bible's worldview verse 3 tells us that they read the book of the law they read the scripture they read the bible for a quarter of a day and then they spend another quarter of the, of the day in confession of sin and testimony of god's greatness and and goodness as well as as worship so when it says that you know a quarter of the day it's not talking a 24-hour day it's talking daylight so 12 hours so check this out for a quarter of the day they listen to the word of god they 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 listen to a three-hour sermon and then for another quarter of the day, they confessed and they worshiped. So they had a three-hour worship service. And I see all of you looking at me right now saying, don't you even think about it. <laughs> the length of the service is not the point. Although, if you ever complain about the length of a worship service, just remember what the Israelites went through. They went through a six-hour worship service. And they still beat the Methodists to lunch. But the length of time is not the point. The point, there actually is one, is that they were centered on Scripture. In, in fact, if, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, because they do go together, you'll notice several times where they would do this, where they would have an extended period of time reading aloud and teaching from the Scripture. Why would they do that? The reason is because the previous generations were judged by God and sent into exile because they did not follow God's word. They disobeyed God's word. And now this new generation would live in the land. Well, if they were going to live in the land, they needed to know God's word. They needed to know God's word backwards and forward and not make the same mistake that the previous generations had made. They, they, they needed to know God's word so they can conform 
their thinking and their attitudes and their actions to what the Word of God said. And so that means they wanted to love what God loves, hate what God hates, do what God says to do, and don't do what God says don't do. They wanted to make decisions that please God according to His Word. They wanted to think thoughts that were in conformity to God's Word. What we would say in modern language is they wanted to take on a biblical worldview. They wanted to look at the world through the filter of Scripture. And if God is going to move in the midst of His people, we need to be guided by Scripture in every aspect of our lives. Every aspect. We don't compartmentalize. Well, I got my work life here, got my family life here, and I got my church life over here. That's not how life works. If we want to see God move in power amongst His people, we live according to the Bible in every area. Every area of our lives. Means we bring our ideas and concepts and decisions to Scripture. And it determines what we believe. That means when it comes to having a belief about some sort of hot topic issue that is out there, we do not begin with the phrase, well, I think, and then fill in the blank. No offense when I say this. It don't matter what you think. How we approach the subjects of our lives, how we approach those hot-button topics that are out there is the Bible says. And then fill in from there. And so we don't think and live as if all people are inherently good because the Bible says all have sinned. We don't think and live as if all people go to heaven because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We don't think and live as if being good gets you to heaven because the Bible says there is none righteous. We don't think and live as if all religions are the same because the Bible says there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. This also means that it is the Bible that determines our morals, not the current fads of the day. And it's definitely not what we feel in our hearts. Well, I feel, no, that's the equivalent of I think. It don't matter what you think, it don't matter what you feel. What does the Bible say? And if you have a hard time moving from, well, I think and I feel, to what the Bible says, you're going to be living in rebellion against God. There's a whole lot of people that claim to be Christian and feel and think things that are the exact opposite of Scripture. That's not being a Christian. So I had a friend tell me that uh, they were driving, doing this scenic drive through a northern state, I think it was Minnesota, and they passed several churches, and all the churches had the rainbow flags and signs that said to the effect that, you know, LGBTQ people are accepted here. Now, listen to me when I say this. I want LGBTQ people to come to our church and hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it will set them free. 
But we will never say that their lifestyle is anything but sin. Why? Because the Bible says it is sin. Yeah, but I think, no. Don't matter what you think, but I feel. No, don't matter what you feel. The Bible says. You know, some people will angrily say, well, what if they're born that way? How, how could God condemn them if they're born that way? Well, first, that's a very doubtful claim. But second, the Bible says you have to be born again. I mean, we're all born into sin. It doesn't matter what our sin of choice is. But the Bible says you need to be born again. We're all born into sin. We're all born sinners. We just have all, we just have different sin. But the Bible says you've got to be born again. You believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a glorious gospel it is. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's where, that's where the power comes. That's God moving in power. What, is, what does Paul say in, in Romans 1? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of salvation unto all who believe. No gospel, no power, all are condemned. Without the gospel, everyone would be condemned. But there is a gospel and there is a church through whom God desires to move to change this world. The question is, are we prepared for it? Are we prepared for it? If you have never believed the gospel, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life, he is the only way. Yeah, but I'm being a good fill-in-the-blank. I'm being a good Muslim. I'm being a good Buddhist. I'm being a good Hindu. I'm being a good guy. I'm being a good girl. I'm being a good this. I'm being a good that. It don't matter because your goodness means nothing to God. You're still not perfect. You have rebelled against God. You have sinned against God. But he gave his son who took the penalty for your sins so that when you believe upon him and trust in him, you have eternal life. He is the only way, truth, and life. And there is no other way to the Father except through him. Yeah, but I think, again, it don't matter what you think. That's what the Bible says. Believe in Jesus Christ, period. Hard stop. That's it. End. End of story. And if you haven't done that during the invitation, I'll be down here at the front pew. Just come, and I would love to introduce you to my Savior, Jesus Christ. But Christian, are you prepared for God to move in your midst, much less move in the midst of our church? Let's come to the altar today and pray that God will work in us so that we are ready and we are prepared for him to do some great and mighty things amongst us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministry is on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.